Our scripture reading today is found in Isaiah 43, verses 8 to 21. That can be found in the Pew Bible on page 603. Isaiah 43, verses 8 to 21. Let us give attention to the reading of God's word. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no god was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is God's word. Well, do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah, in Isaiah 42 and 3. In his first inaugural address, Franklin Delano Roosevelt took or adopted a solemn and, they said, almost religious tone. And it was in delivering that speech that he used a line that has found itself being reused and rebranded and recast by a number of people over the years. The the line was this, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It was used again by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The phrase, of course, is hyperbole. It's exaggeration for effect. It's good rhetoric. As an absolute statement, it's pure nonsense because there are obviously things other than fear, that one should fear, that there are to fear, and that we are required to fear. But using the context in which he used it, he was making this, I think, valid point, that there is a healthy fear that when it degenerates into a nameless, unjustified, unreasoning terror, it numbs, it cripples, it silences, and it immobilizes us. So healthy fear can degenerate into terror 
that leaves us useless. And that's the way in which the word fear is used in the book of Isaiah, and especially in the context that we're reading today. If you look at the beginning of chapter 43, you'll find it in verse 1, where God says to His people, fear not, fear not. That was their problem. They were in danger of looking at their circumstances and being put in a position where they they feared the worst. They feared it was all over, that they were terrified. This was the end. The end was coming. They'd heard the prophet telling them that Babylon was going to rise in power and that Babylon was going to come and take them all away into captivity. And as the people contemplated that terrible end, and, and Isaiah's ministering to people who would be living during that period as they saw this terrible event take place before their eyes, they would be tempted to be terrified at the future. I got in last night from London, and on the plane, I was reading uh, some news reports, and one news report that was, I think, in The Guardian, an English newspaper, was uh, referring to some statistical work they'd been doing on the state of Christianity in Britain. And according to their summary of the state of Christianity, these realities seem to be emerging, that if you take the decline in Christian presence in, in Britain today, by the year 2033, the Church of England will have disappeared. And by the, by the year 2067, Christians will have disappeared. That's if you take the downward decline within the presence and numbers of Christian people in churches to this day. Now you can imagine, that's a pretty depressing thing to read when you're on a plane, hurtling away from the place. And, uh, and it struck me, the kind of comments that people were making, that is, unless it's stopped by some miracle of God, the future, and it's been, as you know, the future for other parts of Europe in the past. And the temptation would be, wouldn't it be, for God's people to be terrified to ask questions. Well, where is God? If God's real, if God is really on our side, how can He let this happen? How could He let, how could He let Christianity in Europe decline as it's done? I imagine the people as, as they saw the decline of Christianity in what is now Turkey, Asia Minor, as it was, when they saw the very, the very seat of pulsating Christian life that you see in the New Testament, in churches, there in that region of the world, uh, that eventually just died out, completely died out, under the influence of Islam. They must have wondered. They must have been terrified. What about the future of God's people? Isaiah is addressing that issue. And in these verses that we're looking at this morning, he's addressing that fear, and he's saying, that the answer for that fear is hope, and hope has its reasons. And those reasons are that we have, as God's people, a sure Word of God. He points them to a great act of God in the future, and He reassures them of the gracious purpose of God. So let's look at those three things together. For people who are in the grip of an undue fear there is a sure word of God. You'll find that in verses 8 to 12 
of chapter 43. He picks up a theme there in verse 8. You can see it as he describes, verse 9, all the nations gathering together and the peoples assembling. In fact, if you look back to 41 verse 1, you'll find that God had called them to draw near and to assemble the nations of the world, the people of the world, from represented by their various people groups that we might call the nations, including the nation of Israel, including the people of God. They're all to gather together to God for judgment. And what is this case that is appearing before God? Well, here's the case. God himself is the accused. God himself is the accused, and the accusers are the nations of the world. We might describe it perhaps in our modern parlance from our perspective. They are the culture. They are the peoples around us, the peoples who claim no allegiance to our God or to our King Jesus. They are the accusers. So here is the Lord God of Israel, and he has made claims for himself. He has made the claim that he is the only God there is. Here are his accusers. They're coming and they're saying, well, all we see when we look at God and his people are a bunch of miserable failures. We look at Israel And what do we see? We see the northern ten tribes have vanished under the influence of the Assyrians. They have been dispersed. They are losing their identity. Their identity will disappear entirely off the face of the earth. They will be unsourceable. You will not be able to find them again, those ten tribes of the twelve of Israel. Here is little embattled Judah to the south, and it's the last tribe standing, as it were, among the tribes of Israel. How can God be God if His people lose all their battles, if His people are such abject failures? That's what the accusers were saying. They were saying, Here's little Israel that's suffering from famine. The weather's been against it. Well, that means the weather God isn't on their side. Here is little Judah. It's losing battles right, left, and center. That means the warrior God is not on their side. Whatever way you look at it, the people of God, in a sense, in their weakness, are a standing statement of the non-existence of God you can imagine that people might be thinking that as they look at those statistics in Europe and particularly in Britain today. Islam is growing. Christianity is decreasing. Islam's God is God. The God of the Christians is not God. You can see the way that that would work as people think. So here they're called again. Here there's a repetition. Here they are gathering together to God again in verse 9. And among the people who are gathering together to God are God's own people. But I want you to notice how God's own people are described here. Look at verse 8. This is, they're, they've already been identified, these people. They're called here those who are blind and those who are deaf. If you were with us last time when we were looking at the previous section, you'll know that those people were already identified. These are God's people. This is God's church. 
God's church is unfortunately characterized by this, that very often God's people close their ears to God's Word, and therefore their eyes are shut to seeing God's handiwork in the world. They don't see His work in nature, or in history, or in providence, or in salvation. They don't see Him at work because their ears are closed to His voice. That's why the Lord Jesus says to His church in Revelation 2 and 3, let those who have ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Why does He have to say that? He has to say that because very often we're not listening to the voice of God. And you see, the, the fundamental reason for that in the story of Israel was that it had been looking at the nations round about and thinking these nations have their idols and their nation, these nations seem to be successful. Their, their agriculture is more productive. Their, their wives are more productive of children. That maybe the God Baal, who is the God of fertility, is a God we should be, we should be following Him as well as the God of Israel. And, and what about these other gods that, that are with them when they go into battle? Maybe we need to be, we need to have them. We need to adopt these warrior gods as our own. And, and so what they'd been doing is they were worshiping the Lord and they were worshiping idols. And as the psalmist says, those who worship idols become like them. You think about it for a moment. Have you ever seen one? Go into the British Museum, you see them all over the place. These are the idols of this period because the, the British got in there first, stole them, and brought them back to Britain. So they're in the British Museum. Uh, you know, th th that's just the way that worked out. And, and uh, if you go in there, you'll see all these idols of these nations round about Israel. And I'm going to tell you, all, all these little images have got eyes, but they don't see. And they have ears, but they don't hear. And they have mouths, but they don't speak. And when God's people turn away from God and they turn away to some other alternative explanation of reality, what happens is they don't hear the Word of God anymore and they don't see what God is doing in the world. Those who worship idols become like the idols they worship. But here's the most remarkable thing. Now you see that. These people, God's people, are gathered with all the nations together before God God is challenging the nations, bring forth your witnesses and prove that you're right, and I'll listen to you. Let your idols hear and say the truth. Well, of course, their idols don't hear anything, can't say anything. Their idols don't talk, don't move, they have to be lifted up put in their place, nailed down so they won't fall, and so on. That was the idolatry of the nations. God is teasing them, testing them, mocking them. But then in verse 10, he says this. He says to the people who are blind but have eyes and who are deaf yet have ears, he's speaking to his own people here, and he says to them, you are my witnesses. Do you know what they weren't doing? They weren't doing any witnessing. We use that word witnessing, don't we, of speaking, 
of articulating the faith. Israel was not articulating or saying anything. They were saying nothing because they weren't hearing or seeing enough to have anything to say. And yet God says about His church, you are my witnesses. Actually, literally, there's a bit more to it than that. If you look at verse 10, and uh, you are looking at the Greek translation of verse 10, the one that the New Testament very often uses, you would find that, in fact, there are three witnesses mentioned. You, Israel, be my witnesses, and I am a witness, says the Lord God, and my servant, the Messiah, the Jewish Targum calls him the Messiah, whom I have chosen. And in the Greek of verses 12 and 13, you have the same thing. You, Israel, are my witnesses, and I am a witness, says the Lord God, even from the beginning. God is saying about His people, you are my witnesses. He goes on to tell them that they're His servants. He has called them, chosen them. He has chosen them that they may know and believe and understand, that they may know, that is, that they might be the one people in the world who acknowledge God as existing. I mean, they may not be doing it very well, they may not be articulating it very clearly, but they were still having worship services aimed at Yahweh, aimed at the Lord. So they were acknowledging Him because they knew about Him. And they believed. That is, they believed what is true about God. Even though they were mixing it up with all kinds of other things, they knew, they believed what they knew about God. And they understood to some degree. And that was God's purpose. That is always God's purpose. That His people acknowledge Him to the world. That His people believe in Him. And that His people come to understand Him and to know something very special about Him. And what is it there to understand? They're to understand something about Him. In fact, in the Hebrew text, there are 19 words in these verses that refer in the first person singular form to God Himself. You are my witnesses, my servant, whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me, says God, and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. What does God want us to understand? He wants us to understand who He is, that this God we worship is the only God there is. He is self-existent, self-sustaining, self-determining. He is utterly unique, utterly unique. When he says, I, I am the Lord, he is putting clear blue water between himself and every other claimant for our heart's allegiance. God has chosen a church in the world that there might be a church in the world that acknowledges and believes and understands who God is and worships Him for who He is. And the greatest failure of the church, as it was the greatest failure of Israel, is when they want to define themselves not by what they know and acknowledge and believe and understand about God, 
but they want to define themselves by how like the nations they are. You remember when they were looking for a king? Do you remember what they said to Samuel when they came looking for a king? They said to Samuel this, we want a king like the nations round about. We don't want to be weird. But all the people point the finger and saying, hey, look at these crazy people. They don't have a, you know, the royal palace. They don't have, you know, uh, they don't have a, a royal mall that goes down with flags flying and so on. They don't have a big golden statue outside of former kings. They've, they've got nothing of that at all. They, they believe in an invisible king that you can't see. We want a king like the nations, they said. And God gave them a king like the nations, and they didn't like it. Amen. <laughs> I'm not sure they would have said amen, because <laughs> they didn't like him. But you see what God says as he brings their attention to him. He says, you know, Babylon can, in its arrogant swagger, say, I am Babylon, Babylon the Great. That's one word in the Hebrew, I am. But here is the Lord, and the Lord uses two words, I, I am. Words which the Lord Jesus self-consciously adopts and uses when he's talking about himself, I, I am. Ego, I me in the Greek, I, I am. Here is what God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. In the book of Isaiah, it is only the Lord who uses this double affirmation of who He is. I, I am. Only the Lord. It's an assertion of absolute monotheism. There is only one God. Israel's God is the only God there is. And Jesus is self-consciously using the same language when he says, I, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He is placing himself alongside the only God there is. And he is saying there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the only Savior of God's elect. He is the only one who can bring you to God. He is the only one available to the human race, the only name by which we must be saved. I, I am. And besides me, says God, do you notice that? Besides me, there is no Savior. No Savior. No one can deliver you except this God. And if you look at verse 12, he says to these people, this is what I did for you. I declared and saved and proclaimed. I declared, I saved, and I, and I delivered you. This is what God had done for these people over and over again. He had declared his word to them. Israel was the recipient of the revelation of God. The church today is the recipient of the revelation of God. You have in your hands this morning with that Bible, you have in your hands the revelation of God that was given by the prophets and apostles to the church. It is a complete, full revelation of God. All that we need for life and godliness is found in God's Word 
written. We are unique. The church is unique. That's why public worship is absolutely vital. For in the public worship of God, we hear the Word of God read. It starts us out. It it, it, it shapes and fashions and forms all that we do together as God's people. By gathering under the Word of God, you and I are saying to the watching world, we are people who are under the Word of God. The Word of God speaks to us. We are people, not so much people of a book, though we are, as people under the authority of what God has to say to His church. I declared, God says, and I saved. He saved Israel from the Red Sea, from the, from the Egyptians. And He has saved us. He has saved His church by the work of Christ for us. So there's revelation and there's redemption. I declared, I saved, and I proclaimed this to you. I, I, I call up prophets and their job was to bring this word to you, to speak to you. Thus says the Lord. This is what God says. God says, but we have a sure word of God. We don't lose, we don't lose heart. We're not to be panicked, terrified, because we have the word of God about himself. The very existence of the church in the world, do you understand? The fact that in spite of everything, there is a church. The fact that God has preserved in the world a people who call upon His name, no matter how weak they are, no matter how blind they are, no matter how deaf they are, no matter how inadequate they may be, no matter how weird we may seem in the eyes of the world. The fact that there is a church means that God has His witness in the world. It is a standing testament to the reality, the existence of the living God. But not only that, he's, he offers them hope, secondly, of a great act of God. Verses 14 to 21. And the key to this section is really in the opening words. Thus says the Lord. That word Lord, when you see it in English, in uppercase letters, always translates the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the word that is used of God when he introduces himself to Moses. You remember the burning bush? I am that I am. This is God's covenant name, the name he only gives to his people. When he sends Moses, he says to them, you tell them that the Lord sent you. I am sent you. It's a word only for his own people. It's a family name, the name the Lord in this case. Redeemer. Not only was Moses to tell them who had sent him, the Lord, but he was sent to proclaim to them that God was going to act to redeem them. He was going to bring them out of their slavery and their bondage and bring them to liberty and freedom. And when he had brought them out of bondage, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there they gathered to God as we have gathered to God in a covenant assembly this morning in church. And there he gave them his law. He gave them his law to teach them that he is a holy God. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is absolutely pure. He is totally, totally righteous. He gathers the people before him so they might understand 
that their own Lord is their Redeemer, and their own Lord who is their Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, here we are today. We, like them, are called by the same Lord. He is our Lord. He is our own Lord. This title is used in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus. He is the great I Am. He is the Lord, the covenant Lord, our Redeemer, the Holy One that was conceived in Mary's womb, the Holy One of Israel in human flesh. Now, there's the reality. And God says to these people, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I'm your King, and I made you a people. I made you a holy nation. I brought you to myself. And I'm going to do things. I'm going to do things in history. I've, I've, I've already proved myself to you that, that I can tell you what's going to happen. I told you that Syria, that is just destroyed northern Israel, is going to be destroyed and disappear told you that Babylon is going to rise up a hundred years hence. Jerusalem is going to fall. The people are going to be exiled into Babylon. But I want you to know that Babylon itself will fall. Babylon, whose economy is built on, it's using the great rivers of that region and, and uh, the, Gulf of, uh, the Gulf of Arabia and so on, using that for the transportation of its goods. Those great ships of Babylon that it uses for its trade and its influence in the region are going to become the means of escape when Babylon itself falls. He's already warned them, told them that, that Babylon would fall at the hands of a power to the east of Babylon. The great power of Persia would rise and would become the power in the region. He's going to go on to tell them the very name of the prince who will lead the Persians. And he's going to tell them that the Persians will be the ones who will facilitate them returning back to Palestine. Now, you see, what God is doing is this. He's saying, you're the people to whom I gave those predictions, those prophecies, those promises. You are the people who bear them. You carry them. You have this deposit of truth. You receive this. You hold on to these things. I mean, it's a remarkable thing, you know, that this book Isaiah is in the Bible because Isaiah says so many terrible things about these people, these Jewish people. He's forever telling them how bad they are, slapping them across the face and, and, and in their face with the Word of God against them, and yet they held on to these books. Why? Because in these books, Isaiah predicted everything he predicted came true. They couldn't avoid the truthfulness of these books. That's why wherever you go, in spite of what some scholars have done, you never find anything other than a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. The oldest manuscript we have of it is a complete copy of this book. It is one book, and it burned itself into the consciousness of these people who had been so idolatrous. It cured them. It cured them forever from idolatry. Even today, Orthodox Jews are strictly monotheistic. That was the impact of the work of this book on the consciousness of the Jewish people. And he says to them, I'm going to do all this and I'm the only one who plans and announces beforehand 
what I'm going to do in the world. I'm your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator, and your King. Isn't it amazing? God has a people. God has a witness in the world, His church. I was on the plane last night, got in at 10 o'clock. I'm living on coffee right now. I may at any moment collapse. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to a man in, in the same row as me. The, the rows on these planes are now so bad, you virtually you get to know people intimately, uh, especially over eight hours in, in an aluminum container hurtling through space. And uh, he was, uh, he's a scientist. He's coming to a conference here in Philadelphia, a Norwegian, uh, comes, lives in Oslo. And uh, before he even knew I was a minister, he was asking me about things. And, and if we go on to talking about the place of religion and science and so on, the connection between them, and he was himself saying that there's a man speaking at this conference, Francis Collins, whose name I known, many will know here, in which he's talking about God. Collins talks about God being outside of space and time and the eternal. Everything is now to God. Everything is, there's no past, no future to God. It's always in the present for him. And uh, he was, this man was testifying. You wouldn't have used that word, but he was testifying to me as Collins will testify to this conference, that God has his witness. God has his people. God has his church in the world. He will not let anybody, even a conference of scientists, have their conference without intruding into it, his presence, so that people are left without excuse. But here God speaks to these people more. Watch what he says. Look at verse 18. God says, I'm going to do something bigger than anything I've ever done for you before. Remember not the former things. He's referring, I think, there to the Exodus. It was a great event, a great deliverance. But he says, don't focus on those things. Forget about Egypt for a moment. I'm going to do something brand new, God says, something far more wonderful than I have ever done before, and I'm going to do it for you as your Redeemer. He's talking about a new exodus. He says to them, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. In the Greek version of Isaiah 43, it says this, do not remember the first things or consider the beginning things. Behold, I create new things. So Israel, God, and the Messiah are witness to this new creation that God is going to bring about, this restoration of God's people in the future. That the God who in the past created the cosmos and the God who through Moses created Israel as a nation at the Exodus, this God is going to witness this new creation with its implications for people and the entire cosmos. That's the point of the beasts and the jackals and the ostriches of verse 20. The whole cosmos, including the animal kingdom, is going to share in that new heaven and new earth. Now, this witness 
of the church is, unlike the witness of the world, a true witness. There's a connection between verse 9 and verse 10. At the end of verse 9, the witnesses that prove the nation's right are not true witnesses because their gods cannot hear or say anything. It's false. In contrast, verse 10, you are my witnesses. This is the implication. You are my faithful witnesses. You are my true witnesses, God says. And it's on that text that our Lord Jesus uses that expression in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where the Lord Jesus says, you remember, the word of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and picking up verse 18 in the Greek translation, the beginning of God's creation. That word beginning is used in the Greek. Consider the beginning things. The beginning of God's creation. That is new creation. This new thing that God is going to do. Jesus is the ruler over the new creation. He is the first in the new creation. He is the author of the new creation. Now, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is meditating on these two chapters of Isaiah when he writes that, that chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you know the passage, you'll know that it's all about reconciliation. He talks about being reconciled to God. And he's picking up chapter 42, verse 19. We looked at that when we were studying it. At the end of verse 19, who is blind but my dedicated one? And if you look at the footnote, it is as the one at peace with me. The reconciled one would be a better translation. Who is blind as my reconciled one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord, that is Israel, are the reconciled. Those who are reconciled to God. And I, that, that's the basis, I think, of Paul using the passage when he's talking about reconciliation. Being reconciled to God. Not only does he use the image of reconciliation there, he also uses the same word for ancient things. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That word old, RK, ancient things, is used here in Isaiah 43. The word Idu, Idu, behold, is used here in Isaiah 43. The word kaina, new things, is used in the Greek of Isaiah 43. Paul is picking up all of this language and he's using it of Christian salvation. He's saying that's what Isaiah is talking about. This new thing that God is going to do is the new thing God does in Christ. It's a brand new thing in history. It's bigger than the old exodus. This is not just bringing a bunch of slaves out of Egypt and giving them their liberation. This is bringing men and women all across the world who are in bondage to sin, bringing them into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Freeing them from their sin. I mean, in, in chapter 42, 43... We, we, we saw this when we're studying it. It talks about God's promise that He will pay an exorbitant price for the ransom of His people. It is the payment of that price mentioned in chapter 43, verses 3 and 4. 
that leads to its effect in chapter 43, verse 22, the forgiveness of sins. And when Paul is meditating on the passage, he spells out what that price was to be, grounded in the love of Christ that controls us. It consists in the fact that one has died for all, that for their sake he died and was raised. And it's because of that, from now on, there is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We are reconciled to God, all because of what Jesus has done. And the third thing that he does in this passage is that he roots that in the amazing grace of God in verses 22 to the end. 22, he, he reminds us that the people he's talking about are not people who deserve this. It's not their performance that earns them this favor. It's not their achievements or their holiness or their godliness that buys them this relationship with God. No, in fact, God's utterly fed up with them. You burdened me, verse 24. You burdened me with your sins, and you've wearied me with your iniquities. But in spite of that, because of the ransom that's paid, because of what God has purposed to do, he says to them, look at verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That little phrase, blot out, when you do a study of the use of it in the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek, a people who were disgusting. He will blot out the name of the unrepentant. And he says to his people, I am going to blot out your transgressions. And in case you didn't get what that means, he underlines it by saying, I will not remember, I will choose not to remember against you your sins. This is the grace of God in the gospel. And it's even more wonderful than that. I need you to see this. He goes on to speak in verse 2 of 44. Fear not. Here he is now winding around. We're completing this pattern of addressing our fears by giving us hope. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jacob was the twister. Jacob, when you see it like that in this context, is talking about the worst side of what we are as God's people. But he says to us, the same people, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jeshurun is uh, a word that is, has as its root the idea of being upright. And it's an affectionate term. My own dear righteous people. That, we could translate it like that. My own dear righteous people. And you can imagine the impact of this message on the people that Isaiah is speaking to. You started off by God saying to us, you're blind, 
and you're deaf and you've wearied me with your iniquities and I'm fed up with your sin and yet here he is now calling them my dear beloved upright or righteous people and this is precisely of course what Paul picks up he picks up this language as well in his exposition of what Jesus does for us I'll read it to you at the end of that section in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become his dear, loved, upright ones. We might become the righteousness of God in Him. So here's how he addresses our fear. He points us really to the gospel. He points us to the gospel that deals with us in all our infirmity and our weakness. He says the fact of the matter is, in spite of the church having the face of a sinner, in spite of the church being as flawed as the church is, it is his standing witness to the world. The world is condemned by the existence of a church of people like you and me, with all of our faults and failures, with all of our sins and shame, that we are nonetheless a testament to the fact that there is a God who exists and who brings us in all our disparate backgrounds, brings us together under His Word, His sure Word. For He has done this new thing for us, this new thing for us that leaves us open-mouthed with wonder, thinking, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to His cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray together. Father, we ask You that You would, in the midst of the changes and the term, turmoil that we see all around us, in the church and in the world in these days, that you would keep us, Lord, coming back again and again to the cross and there find our hope, our joy, our consolation there to the praise of your glory. Amen.